Hello and welcome to Elixir Mix. I am your host, Alan Wyma. Today I'm with Camille Lelovic. I believe I said that correctly. And we invited him on to talk about one of his articles about comprehensions. But I think a good way to kind of get to know who is Camille is for him to kind of introduce himself. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello and thank you for the invitation. As you said, my name is Camille Lelonek. I'm Elixir engineer, software developer. I've been working with Elixir for over five uh, years, almost six years so far. And I've been working also not only as a developer, but also I was responsible for architecture, infrastructure, so things related to DevOps as well. I'm also a technical team leader. I've been working as a CTO. So I have, um, I, I tried many different areas, all related uh, to, to IT and of course, Elixir development. So that's, that's all about me. And we are here because I wrote an article and yeah, I have my own blog with Elixir articles. I like sharing my knowledge with others when I'm learning some things. I also write down some notes and then instead of uh, keeping them only for me, I want to share them. So I create articles with all my thoughts and discoveries. So that's all about me. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. There's a lot more about you, right? I was just looking around at your profile and it appears you worked on some interesting projects. So I'm not sure what is quiz pie is a quiz P, but I did see now this. I, I always see now this. I'm a little bit of a YouTube junkie. So what is it that you did for now this? So basically now this, what, what we did there was to, to predict the trends and to analyze the trends, how social media posts perform. So basically, once the post or a new Facebook post is, is created and is published, we gather all the information like reactions, comments, views, and we, we, we basically estimate the trends about future similar posts. So we make analyzes how they are performing, whether this content will, how, how to say that, whether there, there, there were many people who, who clicked on that, who, who watched video, who commented the particular post. And based on that, we could predict at what time at, and what kind of post should be created and published in the future. So all of, all of that was Facebook trends, analyzing of the post and predictions for, for the future and suggesting the next content to be published. So this is what we did in uh, Nowis. It sounds quite interesting. I'm guessing this is probably all with Python, right? You didn't use any NX yet? Actually, we did all of that in Elixir when it comes to this prediction engine and uh, post analyzing. Uh, but when it comes to video analysis, uh, we used uh, Python and image recognition. So Python combined with Elixir, but yeah, except videos, we used Elixir for most of the things. Now, was there any kind of problem? Because people always say, yeah, you know, if you want to do this kind of thing, you should probably use Python or C, mostly Python or even R, right? I'm kind of curious about how you managed to pull it off because I'm guessing this was before NX came out, right? You know what, basically, the, the as you mentioned, the biggest problem is with Elixir is all about libraries, right? What we have, what is available at the moment, because when it comes to Python, R, 
or whatever else uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence, all of libraries are out there. There are calculations to be ready to be used out of the box. And when it comes to Elixir, we usually have to write more things on our own but it wasn't big problem we we had strong ai team there and we we didn't actually we didn't have to use any sophisticated algorithms it was basically quite easy and after some time we had our own libraries for all the thing so it wasn't a, a big problem in reality did you actually end up any uh, open sourcing from any of these libraries? Because I can imagine they could be useful. Unfortunately, not for not for nowadays. We had to use internal tools and we couldn't expose them externally, unfortunately. But some time ago, I wrote blockchain library for Elixir, which I open sourced. And I know it's widely used in different companies as core of their financial calculations and blockchain calculations engines. So this one I open sourced and yeah, I noticed how useful is it to open source some uh, Elixir libraries uh, because lots of people are are using this. And I didn't experience that when I uh, was doing, for example, Ruby because, or JavaScript. Uh, in, In JavaScript and in Ruby, there are tons of libraries and it's very hard to become I would say popular, but when it comes to Elixir, once you open source some robust, of course, library, well written and well tested, it can become very popular very, very soon because, yeah, Elixir developers still are looking for basically good tested and, and stable libraries, right? Yeah, definitely. What, what is actually the name of the blockchain library? Because I can imagine, like you said, a lot of people would find this to be quite useful. Do you it's mind to share the name? Yeah, yeah, it's called X Wallet. Oh, I've seen that name. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, it's available on my GitHub. It's basically a Bitcoin, Bitcoin-based library. But uh, yeah, the concepts are known from blockchain in general. When I was learning blockchain and Bitcoin concepts, I was reading lots of books, and I decided to move all of these concepts to to Elixir. Of course, there were available books in, uh, not not books, but libraries in, in JavaScript, in, in Ruby, in Python, of course. But I decided to write my own in Elixir. So I wrote this X wallet, which basically pre- presents all of Elixir concepts in terms of blockchain and this wallet calculation, generating signatures, public, private keys, and so on. And of course, I documented all of that in a series of articles. Actually, I wrote five articles on Medium about that, and I'm documenting my entire way how I've I've been creating this this library. That's pretty cool. Wow. I mean, you have. I, I'm just kind of curious, actually, using Elixir for blockchain kind of stuff. Does that actually make working with blockchain easier, or is it about the same? Because I can imagine you're working with binary data, right? And you're doing some pattern matching here and there. Uh, yes, you said definitely. Make it easier. Mm-hmm. It's all about binaries. And I noticed that it's it's much easier comparing to the languages when we don't have such simple access to binaries, I would say. In Elixir, it's it's very easy. It's all about pattern matching of particular binaries. It's all about operating on, on bits, shifting positions, and so on which is, for example, very very simple in C or C++. It's also very simple in Elixir. So, yeah, I was impressed how how easy it could be to, to just operate on blockchain with Elixir using these binary operations. That's Yeah, I'm just looking at it. It looks pretty cool. I could definitely see all the binary stuff going on. It's pretty interesting. Now, did you do this just for fun, or you said you did this for a specific project and then you just open-sourced it? Yeah, actually, I was... I was learning blockchain for my own purposes to just to know how it works, what is it all about, also how Bitcoin works and under the hood. So yeah, I decided to to create such library because as I said, I like document my learning 
way when I'm learning something, I, I, I really like to make notes and document it. So I decided to create a, a library that, that will document my entire way of learning and the knowledge I got. So this is, this is why I did that. And just a fun fact, long time ago, but a couple of months after releasing this library, I was talking to a company that they were trying to, to hire me and they were using this library as a core of their entire financial and payment system in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but in uh, Bitcoin in particular. And yeah, they, they were using my li- library as a, as, a, as a core of their system. And later, I got to know that some other companies are doing that as well. So I know that there are at least uh, four companies that using this library as uh, in their system even right now. Can you name who they are or is it a little bit of a secret? I'm not sure if I can, can say that, but I can say that they are from Helsinki, Stockholm and Tallinn. So these are three cities and these Scandinavian cities actually. The Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrencies are very popular there. So I know these companies are from these countries, the cities. Yeah, I I can also imagine this being so. There is a local company out here in Hong Kong called Crypto, Crypto.com. So I can imagine they might be using this too. Yeah, I, I know they're definitely using Elixir because I know yes, somebody's there, about to join there, them, and it's a little yeah, bit exactly. of a secret. The, the, mm-hmm. There is one company in, in Hong Kong. I don't know their name, but yeah, one guy from from Germany who is CTO there in Hong Kong contacted me some time ago, but uh, asking about some, some kind of uh, details. But yeah, I don't know the, the company name, but I know they are in Hong Kong and the CTOs is guy from, from Germany. So this is what I know. Sounds like it could be them because there's not too many. Well, there's quite a few crypto, well, there's quite a few blockchain companies, but not necessarily crypto, kind of trading crypto, etc. So I don't know. Maybe it's probably better I don't ask. <laughs> Maybe I'll get you in trouble. I don't know. But yeah, it's Maybe. it's it's a small small world, right? So I can imagine yeah. it's probably them because Elixir is just not that popular out here. I try to hire people out here, and and I tell them we use Elixir, and then they lose interest because they're afraid. <laughs> they're afraid of uh, either not understanding or. Maybe they're afraid that they'll they'll never get another job because this language is not being used. As opposed to if you're using Java for ten years, you can always find a job in a bank. So yeah, but are you are you talking about developers? So developers are afraid of this new tech, new relatively new technology, or how is it from your perspective? My perspective, right, is is basically what I just said, and I'll reiterate: is people are afraid of anything that's kind of not mainstream. So they go for JavaScript. Wow. They go for they go for uh, Java. They go for C or C++, anything that's not one of these four, and definitely the main, the first two, or even Python. Uh, so the, the main three, I would say, is JavaScript, Java, or Python. Anything else outside of that is just kind of like stuff that they try to steer away from because they, yeah, I mean, they 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 think it's kind of like a dead language, and they think that you can never, you know, translate this kind of skills to other places. There's actually quite a bit of Go out here, but yeah, it's Go, right? So it's popular because of Google. At least that's my kind of understanding. I did do some Go before. I wasn't a big fan of it. Have you ever done Go before? Yeah, I've been doing Go for a year, I think. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in reality, it uh, didn't convince me. Uh, I I was missing some high-level functions, I would say. So when it comes when you compare error... Uh, to check if error is nil or when you have to loop with with this four and yeah there there aren't any kind of map reduce and some other high level functions i uh, yeah it's it's not something for me i would say to me one of the biggest turnoffs was i spent most of my time going from string to byte array byte array to string many times in just yeah. one single call uh, one single request. I thought that was a little bit ludicrous. So, <laughs> but yeah, and then I started doing Rust and and I think if I compare the two, Rust is definitely the winner. You still get high level functions, but you also get low level code, right? Which is very attractive to me. Have you done Rust before? No, not really. I just heard about it, but I I don't think I even see some some kind of code. So not at all. 
Okay. Uh, I did actually did a, a video on how to use uh, Rust as a NIF. I think you've probably worked with NIFs before, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did, there's Rustler, right, which you can use Rust to write NIFs in, and that was quite nice. I think I went from 10 minutes of processing down to about, I don't know, maybe two seconds, something like that. Wow, wow, okay. So this was parsing XML files, and the XML parsers we have in Elixir and Erlang are not that performant. I think I had about four gigs of RAM being used to parse XML for some strange reason. <laughs> so, and that took it right down to, I don't know, 20 megs or something. Uh, I think that yeah. library is just not that good. Yeah, I noticed but... that parsing is still a big issue in many different languages. I also open sourced a YAML library for, for Elixir. And seriously, I have already 20 contributors of that library and people are still making some issues, adding some some changes, making submitting pull requests. So this library is very is, is highly used. And yeah, it's just about parsing YAML format. So I guess in case of XML, it would be very, very similar. So still parsing causes some 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 problems in, in many different languages and yeah requires time as as you as you said, performance issues and so on. Yeah, I was quite surprised that there's no YAML uh, or CSV library built into Elixir, but I understand that if there's that's going to require somebody to actually maintain it. And a lot of Elixir stuff is kind of piggybacking on Erlang. And so if Erlang doesn't have it or, or OTP, then getting them to accept it into there and to for them to take care of it is very difficult to do, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, no, it's your background is very interesting. It's a little bit reflective of me, but of course you have your own style. So I thought this was quite interesting. But okay, actually, I'm also kind of curious about the Polish community over there. So how is it in terms of Elixir, right? Is it actually popular out there or can you actually find people hiring? Yeah, I think I think the community is, of course, still growing, but it's quite opposite to what you said, because here, if someone hears Elixir, okay, they're very willing to, to write some code in Elixir. And it's, I would say it's not a problem to, to find Elixir developer because in Polish community, people very like to, to experiment, to try new technologies, cutting edge tools and, uh, and libraries. So here we like experiment. If you say hire for Rust, Flutter, Elixir, I will find very quickly uh, new developers for that. So it's, it's not a problem. We have, I would say, a couple of leading companies with uh, dozens of Elixir developers there. So yeah, it's, it's popular. As you know, Jose lives uh, from, from time to time. I, I don't know about the current status, but I know that he lives uh, in, in Poland a lot. And that's why we had this Elixir uh, conference in, in Poland a couple of, in a couple of years. So it's it's very popular, and and I would say yeah, the community is quite big here. Yeah, okay, that's pretty interesting. And and about the cutting edge, actually, one of the people I interviewed, their their complaint was that we are too cutting edge, which I thought was a little bit backwards from the way I think. I think like you, I think cutting <laughs> edge is more interesting than than I guess you'd call it dull edge. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, 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 maybe I should move to Poland. Maybe that's more more for me. I do like pierogies, so that's that's <laughs> on my list now. So and, and also sauerkraut and sausages, if I remember correctly. Yes, you're right. All right, I think we have a good overview of you. Unless you wanted to talk about anything in particular about like kind of like where you work, because you did say you're a CTO. So, but I tried looking up a little bit more information about you. I couldn't see of what company. I don't know if it's because you have your own shop or what. Yeah, currently I, I'm working as a consultant for American company. It's called an NCC National Software National Computer Corporation, and we are doing real-time distributed systems terminals for ordering food in uh, restaurants. When you when you go to Burger King or McDonald's and you see a terminal when you can pick your order and you can you can order whatever you want, and so we are building such systems to support them. These systems are of course distributed; they 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 work in in real time, and this is what what we are building. And yeah, and I'm helping a couple of others companies in their projects as a, as an independent 
consultant co contractor, I would say. So this is what I'm doing. Really? Okay. Because I know we have some of those terminals out here. So they use some kind of distribution inside of them? Uh, these little terminals yeah, because, that you order food with? Of course, because imagine you have three, three terminals and three people making orders at the same time. So these orders has to be synchronized, especially in terms of stock, in terms of what has been ordered and what has to be prepared by, by the kitchen. When there are some sales assistants, they are taking money for just order. They also need to uh, update the status of the order. So all everything has to be has to be distributed and work uh, in, in real time, coordinated between each each other and synchronized. So there's a lot uh, happening under the under the hood, and yeah, real time and, and distribution is basically the core of, of the system. Wow, I, honestly, I would love to hear more about this. Is there anything you can say because at a higher level? Because I'm just trying to think about how this works. I've done something in Live View where I was able to basically soft reserve tickets, and so if I selected ten and there was a total of twenty, then if somebody else tried to select 10, they would actually be updated in real time that there's only 10 available based on, you know, as soon yeah, so, as you selected. So, yeah, so similar, right? So what, what we are doing, first of all, is uh, PubSub, right? So PubSub and, and subscriptions and publishing events. So is, is the one thing. And I'm writing also a new article about that, but it will take some, some more time. And the other thing is Nesha. We use Nesha caching and Nesha storage for synchronization. We use these global agents and, and global processes. So on high from, from the high level perspective is the pops up, so subscriptions, messages, and Nesha and global state, global agents. Of course, we also use the, the centralized systems. So uh, our terminals can work offline. They are synced when they uh, become online. Yeah, we also have a couple of layers of caching, caching on the terminal uh, perspective, caching on the server layer. So there's lots of work going on under under the hood. But yeah, core core features would be, as I said, Nesha peer-to-peer and agents. Global agents. I always heard that global agents and global processors are very not good to use. Or am I thinking wrong? Because I'm just thinking that, because if you ever create one of these it's kind of like an atomic where everybody has to agree that there is just this one agent right if you use this is that the uh P, not pg is it pg2 or something that has all the global yeah. state and they're syncing up that's pg2 right or pg now yeah yeah so, so is it not a bad thing to do or, or there's a proper way to do this basically they are not good way to do for each case so there are cases when we should avoid them but when you when the state is isolated from each other or the changes are isolated from each other and they are not modifying, one is not modifying the other, for example, making orders, it's nothing bad. For example, if you, if you do, when someone is ordering in one terminal and some, someone else is ordering on the other terminal, it's nothing bad when you have just two orders stored in this global state because one order has nothing to do with, with the other one. So there are cases when you can use them, but as, as always, for sure, I believe uh, there are cases where we, we couldn't use them. So as you said, not necessarily they are bad in every, for every issue, but sometimes we can use them and don't have any problem with, with them at all. Okay, okay. It's good to, good to know that there's always edge cases that works out okay. I don't want to drift too far away from the reason that we bring you here, right? So the reason we bring you here is all about the four, the Elixir comprehension, right? So why did you decide to write this article to begin with? Because, yeah, I mean, it's not something I often see people write about, to be honest. Yeah, because Elixir 4 comprehension is quite interesting thing. Basically, in general, comprehensions provide much more consistent representation than uh, using equivalent functions from the enum module, right? And we, it's, I would say it's some kind of syntactic sugar to, for, for the enum functions. And sometimes I'm seeing they're overused or not used correctly, 
or sometimes we could use enum functions instead of for comprehensions and the other way around. So it's not that easy to just use them. I think we should use them in right places and uh, leverage all the features they they provide. And this is basically what I wait what I what I noticed. And these comprehensions are not something new. We know them, for example, from Python. Like you mentioned, uh, Python has their own for uh, syntax. So that's why we decided to, to write about them uh, to just briefly summarize how they can be used and why we should use them and what are the benefits and maybe tips and tricks of using this for comprehensions in, in Elixir. Now, are these actually just piggybacking on comprehensions with Erlang? Because if I remember correctly, Erlang has very similar type of comprehension, right? Yeah, but I've never used this plain comprehensions from, from Erlang. So I focused only, only on Elixir ones, which are basically macros. And the syntax under the hood is uses these enum functions. Okay, okay. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or... If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Now for for this, right, so there's, I'm looking at your comprehensions, right? You said there's basically three parts, generator, filter, and collectibles. Now, generator... You did mention Python, right? Python too has the has the idea of a generator. So, how does a generator compare between Python and Elixir in this case? Basically, basically generators produce the data for comprehensions. So it's like you are taking the collection and get the the result element, which is something you know from from Python. Like you iterate over an array, for example, right? So that would be generators. But the entire comprehension is, as I mentioned in my article, is something more than just generators. So we can leverage some other collectibles and filters and that are part of the entire comprehension. But yeah, generators are something that produce the data for comprehension. Okay. And they just keep going on until they basically run out of data. There's not, I guess there could be a way that you could just forever keep producing data, right? From a generator. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you use, for example, infinite stream, you could infinitely produce produce the and generate the the data. Okay, okay. And I think one of the things that people don't really realize is that there's actually a way to filter data, which is I actually I forget to be honest. I think most people they would probably do the filtering within the do block rather than filtering at the uh, expression line, right? Yeah, exactly. Because you can you can filter data on this comprehension level, which is basically to produce only data that matches certain condition you could use like very basic functions like comparison to if this number is bigger on or equal to some other number you can compare strings you can basically use the same basic functions from from the kernel module that you use for example in uh, in guards function guards yes so you can use the same functions but also basically you can use any function uh, that returns boolean so you can use any other function or even anonymous function. You can call it directly inside this filter just to have generator, uh, which is producing data that matches a search certain conditions. So this is what filters are, are used for. Now, for this one, does it have to be a true or false, a Boolean one, or can it actually be a truthy value? So it could just be nil if it's going to be false. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you can use just truthy value and nils will be rejected. Okay, okay. Do you know if it's any quicker to use the, the conditional filtering on the expression line or if it's about the same if you just did the conditional within the do? It's it's basically on what data you will have in your result. So if you don't... Yeah, but okay, okay. To answer your questions a little bit differently, you're asking if there's any other way between filters or uh, filtering inside the the result? Yeah, basically. I don't think there is not I think about it because that would just return the value or not as opposed to if you tried to filter it within the do, it wouldn't really work, right? Because you had to return something. Yeah, because the, the result 
of a comprehension is, as, as we mentioned previously, is collectible, which is the, the final result. And based on that result, we can filter that, that later. We can filter also inside the comprehensions or we can filter at the comprehension level. So there are three, three different ways of, of filtering that. I guess it's just have correct data to work on later instead of like, okay, having comprehension to produce the data, then you'll filter or reject some data. So it's additional step, I would say. So that's why I like putting these filters in generators to work inside generators on the data that I'm interested in and not to redu- uh, reject or filter some data after after it's produced from the comprehension. So it's just simpler and more concise, I would say. Yeah, so now that I'm thinking about it, I can't imagine how many times I've actually had to do mapping and then filtering or even filtering before I mapped, that this would actually be easier because I'm basically, and I think you showed that in your article, is that you can do filtering and mapping with just using the generators. So it's almost like, why would you even not use a generator at this point, right? Yeah, because you can you can do this transformation at the same level. So you can do do mapping to receive structure that you want to work on instead of having to prepare the structure uh, from the data you receive. So it's good to do as much as you can in 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 the comprehension to receive the the data that is I that is yeah or either reduced or filtered or or both. So you can reduce and filter the data in the generator. And then inside the do block, you, you have ready data, data to use. Already filtered and already transformed somehow. Yeah. So do you know if there's any difference in performance? I mean, there must be because you would, if you did, did each step by itself and you're actually doing double the work, right? To be honest, I run only a few tests on that. And uh, maybe maybe the, the collections weren't too big, but I didn't notice any major differences in terms of performance. So they uh, basically behaved similarly from what I noticed. But as I said, I didn't run any very comprehensive and, and big performance tests for that. But I have to say the one thing that you probably don't want to use this for is for something that you want to stream. Like, so a lot of data, you probably want to go for the stream module rather than you doing the comprehension, right? Because this would probably load everything into memory. Yes, yes, definitely. So when it comes to streams and when we are working on streams, I prefer to use stream module. At the at the very end, we, we can use this for comprehensions or when we would use enum something because uh, yeah, we we need to have this this data as a data and not not as a stream. And so the generators have to come from an enum, but you can only into a collectible. Is that right? Actually, yes. So the 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 collectible protocol at least is default something that's returned from a from a generator. So this is what what we are receiving, and yeah. But the collection is something that implements enumerate enumerable protocol and can be our source of the data. Okay, okay. Yeah, this is, just wanted to be sure. I didn't actually, like I said before, I think before we started recording is that I wasn't actually, I didn't actually remember the collectible protocol because it really just only has one function, right? Which is just the into function. And it seems like nearly every enum also implements collectible. I don't think there's any that don't come to the top of my head. No, we have these two very popular protocols, enumerable, enumerable yeah. and collectible that are, that are widely used. Sometimes we are, we are not even aware of that, yeah, that, that we are using. Yeah. Now, when you're writing this article, as you're writing it, did you find out new things or was this just all kind of, you know, second out shoot? Because I believe you told me that you're working in Elixir for about six years, right? Maybe when it comes to this reduce option then that you can provide, I call it a secret option. Because this is like using enum reduce, and this I discovered while writing this article. Because so far I've never used this reduce reduce option, but actually when I tried that, it worked, and I started digging why it work, why it works, and how exactly. So this was the secret function I discovered while writing this this article, and 
actually I'm using it right now in a couple of places in my product. So it's it's not like it's only a f- interesting thing, but it's really practical, I would say. Actually, now that you mentioned it, I did read through this and I kind of was following, but I wasn't 100%. Do you mind to walk through the reduce? Because I'm sure there's many other people that also don't quite get reduce. Okay, so let's talk about the example from my article that I mentioned. Imagine we have a sentence. We want to count how many times each word appears in the sentence. Uh, we Normally, we would use enum reduce function we would split the sentence by words, then we would reduce. On that, we could create an empty map and reduce over that over, over these words. And once we have such word, we could increment a, a number of how many times this particular word appears in, in the sentence. And this for that, we would, uh, re- we would use reduce function. And Exactly the same thing we could use we could use with comprehensions. So we would split a sentence and we would uh, use for to iterate over this list of words. And while using reduce option, we would only provide inside do block anonymous function function that would receive accumulator as an input and would update accumulator with a number of occurrences of each word, of course, word by word, because this is how comprehensions work. So uh, when we use this reduce element in our comprehension inside do block, we have to use like pattern matching or anonymous function, because in this block, we won't get just an element, but we would get this accumulator and so we had to return or actually write an, a function that would operate on this accumulator and return a result. So reduce changes a little bit how what we write inside this do and block. Inside just getting elements or returning them, we are taking, we are providing then a, a syntax that is that is known from, for example, from condition block. We we just match accumulator and return a result. So this is what what changes. So it's almost the same to what we have in this enum redus function. Okay, I think I got it. It's just not so straightforward to me because you're so used to having a function and you have both of your arguments, but this one you have the outside expression, but you also have like a pattern match on the inside with the accumulator, right? It's not so clear when I first look at it. That's right. Okay, okay, I think I got it. But in, in, if I remember correctly, in Python, you can actually have like two generators in one line, but I don't think you can do anything similar with a four comprehension in uh, Elixir, or am I wrong? Basically, you can have more than one data sources inside generator. So you can, uh, so yet another example from my article. So if you have clothes, for example, and sizes, you can iterate over uh, clothes and sizes and combine them. Uh, so in the result, you will have like shirt S, shirt medium, shirt large, pants, uh, small, medium, and large, and so on. So you can yeah. combine a couple of data sources and you can compose them in any way you want. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't know how I missed this one. I, I must have missed it when I was looking over it. But yeah, this is exactly what I was thinking about. So then you could, I mean, this would be easy for, for creating a bunch of like, a, basically a playing card deck, right? You want to have one of everything yeah, all the way yeah, across. Exactly. If okay. you care about combinations, permutations, so you can use it for exactly for that. Oh, that's perfect. Oh, I can. I wish I would have even looked at this a while back. I think I had to generate, I said, permutations before. So that's interesting. Okay, pretty cool. You also had some other articles, right? I saw one in here that I couldn't quite read, which was the Erlang and the Elixir on Erlang VM demystified. What's what's that all about? Yes. So as I mentioned, when I'm learning something, I like to document it. So I, at some point, I wanted to know how Beam works, what is OTP, what is Elixir runtime, how does scheduler work, what is the difference between OS process, OS thread, how BIM is constructed, what are schedulers and what are processes, 
inside the scheduler, which is run on uh, OS Fred. How is it compared to just regular operating system process? So this is all thing I, I, I described I describe there. In case of someone is interested in this, what, what is happening under the hood, how, how OTP is constructed, and how to think about this entire uh, Erlang runtime ecosystem. So this is what I described there. So for example, you can, you can think of that like Beam instance, which is this virtual machine starts in a single operating system process. Then uh, there are different uh, operating system threads, which runs these schedulers. And inside each scheduler, we can start multiple processes uh, in, in, inside, inside Elixir or Erlang. So this is how we should uh, understand how our processes in our code that we, that we spawn works and that they are not these operating system processes because actually uh, each process is run uh, per one CPU. So if you have four CPUs in your computer, they can run four different processes with four Erlang machine instances. On each instance, there's one scheduler, and for each scheduler, you can run as many processes as you want inside your Elixir or Erlang code. So this is how it's structurized, I would say, and this is what I described in this article. So you, for example, Elixir doesn't have threads. You can think of that that threads as these internal processes. We are using this, this in their so-called process inside Erlang or Elixir, and they're not like threads known from other languages or from the just um, computer science and operating systems knowledge. You have quite a, a background, as I think we've discussed. I mean, knowing what you know, how the VM works, do you think this is a good or a bad thing where they, this idea of processes versus actually using real threads? Actually, it has their own benefits and drawbacks, of course. They're just, I would say it's yet another model that you need to understand if you want to write efficient code and operate on your processes, making things concurrent and asynchronous. Because as you know, there's a this concurrency concept in Elixir and this BIM, so this Erlang virtual machine, is responsible for scheduling these processes. If a process exceeds execution slot, it's paused, it's moved back, the other process is started, it's called preemption. And this is how this virtual machine executes these processes. And if you understand all of these things, you can write your Erlang Elixir processes more efficiently when you have this understanding of what is happening under the hood you can I would say feel more comfortable about your code you can avoid some kind of memory leaks for example and you can improve the per the overall performance in your code right so so this is what gives you understanding of uh, what is happening under the hood, but it's not necessary. You can write tons of code without knowing all these things and still be a good developer, right? So all depends on the case and the environment and the project you are working on. Yeah, yeah, true. So it's not really a, a, good, a good way and a bad way, right? It kind of depends yeah. on other certain circumstances. Okay, quite interesting. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about while we have a few more minutes? Actually, I really, I was really engaged others to, to write their own blogs, articles, because this is how the community is growing. We learn from each other, not only use Stack Overflow, but we also learn articles, blog posts. We learn from open source libraries. So it's good when someone is maintaining, if Every Elixir developer would maintain at least one open source library. The Elixir environment would be very evolving very, very fast and developing very fast, right? So I really encourage others to put some of their work in open source libraries, GitHub projects, or just writing blog posts 
and articles and sharing their knowledge. So this would be my last word for, for others. Yeah, I think that's very true, right? And I think that, yeah, for some reason, I'm, I'm not sure why, but we all seem to kind of favor written articles, right? But that, of course, that's that the only uh, medium that I tend to learn better from like videos, I think, because it's you can kind of watch somebody and hear them talking about the process behind it, as opposed to when you get the blog article, you have the final nicely put together piece but there's always some information that gets out when somebody's kind of thinking out and talking through their process and doing things. You can see them trying things that maybe you would try and you can see why they don't work. So yeah, there's, there's it kind of depends on, on you, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. If there's nothing else, then I think we can get right on to picks. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So do you have any picks for us, or do you want me to start first? You can start first. <laughs> sure. So where did I put my pick? So my pick, I have a couple of picks this week. So one pick is GitLab. So if you've ever used gitlab.com before, I use them a lot for the past couple of years. And I only basically use the bare minimum features. I push code to it. Then I started using the CI CD server. But recently I actually moved a client from uh, using just uh, e-deliver and, uh, and distillery on a single uh, EC2 to now using EKS because, well, one of their, basically their production server is running on Ubuntu 14.04 or something, which is just, the security updates just expired back in April. So we we moved them over to the new EKS and GitLab actually has great integration with EKS and we just started using it. And it's great that we could just push our code and everything just gets deployed and all the integrations that they have with like security scanning, everything else is looking quite interesting. It's been growing over time, and sadly, I haven't been paying attention to it. But now that I moved over to GitLab deployed EKS, yeah, I think that's kind of the next thing I'm going to be looking at. The next pick I have is, since we're talking about kind of sharing with the community, I have my own YouTube channel. I think I mentioned it before. I'll put videos every week, and I think that you kind of inspired me to you know, let people know that there is another kind of medium out there. And, and I try to release an Elixir video every week, once a week. So I have another one coming out basically Friday. So every Friday, release a video. So kind of those are my picks. What about you? So as we as we've talked about before recording, I can really recommend looking at uh, Neo4j, which is graph database. I know that in, in Elixir and basically in most of languages, especially when it comes to web development, we are focusing on MySQL, Postgres, uh, Oracle databases. We think in relational way. We try to, to think about relations between records, tables. We, we think in this table, very table way. But I realized that in many, many cases, we could actually think about our data like they're kind of big graph and we have nodes, we have relations between nodes, especially when you think that when you feel you have too many, many too many relations between between your records, maybe it's a good time to introduce a graph database in your system. As I as I said, I'm using Neo4j graph database in my Elixir project, one, one of my, my projects. And it's very easy to use with Elixir. There's you just write queries, you run queries, you transform the, the data. Uh, you don't have to write your like your own 
adapters, integration, there's not much work to do in reality, but the benefits are huge. So just when you're, even maybe when you're starting a new project, just think if, if the data is really relational or you could use graph connections. So maybe you can read a little bit how this nodes graphs works and decide whether that would be a good solution for your own project. So this would be my pick just to think not always about like Elixir, okay, Ecto and Postgres, or maybe Elixir, but Neo4j and this graph database. So this is what I could recommend you to think about when you're starting a new project or, or if you feel that your database is growing or you lost control of your data and you're trying to find a different solution. So instead of like redesigning your relations and, and then the data and how your tables are structured, maybe you can think if other way of structuring data would be a better solution for that. So this is my, my pick. Yep. Any other picks or just the one pick? I think I don't have any others in terms of IT, but when it comes to books, what I could recommend is the book called Tangled Web. In short, it's it's all about security and how why we are fundamentally insecure and how to care about our security, not only web security, but security in, in general. But of course, when focusing on the, on the web, internet, and what are the risks, yeah, I can really recommend reading, reading these books when you want to care about your, your, your security and, and feel secure, especially right now when there are lots of scams, phishing, and, and other risks from coming from every, every side. Yeah, I, I think... Knowing about how security works, especially at some places, it's a little bit scary, like what's yeah, going on. definitely. Yeah, so I, you're going to give me nightmares tonight, to be honest. <laughs> I think about all the things that's totally unsecure, insecure. So, uh, okay, great. Uh, if you have no more shout outs or anything else, and I think we can sign off for today. It was great chatting with you. I wish next time, you know, you can come back and be more people. So it's not just me enjoying the good time with you. <laughs> Yeah, so. thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And it's, it wasn't the first podcast, our our podcast. So I hope it, it won't be the, the last one. Oh, I hope not. So, all right. Thank you. Thanks again for coming. And yeah, I hope we can see you again. Yeah, thank you. And bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.